if we hark back for a moment to the globalist position in particular and raise the issue of winners and losers, because that is fundamental to debates about globalisation, would it be right for me to presume that positive globalists see everyone winning and pessimistic globalists see everyone losing? I mean, is that a reasonable description, Rare? Well, not exactly, I think. Positive globalists recognise that in the short term, there will be losers. For instance, as workers in the north lose jobs as companies move their production to cheaper centres in the south. But in general, it is the case that positive globalists see everyone winning in the middle to long term, while pessimistic globalists see everyone losing to different extents, perhaps. Pessimistic globalists argue that the term globalisation is just another name for international capital extending and securing power and exploitation at a global level. So we can identify quite easily those who pessimists would see as likely losers. In cultural and technological terms, the losers are those well, to put it bluntly, without access to the internet and more generally losers are national economies without developed financial communications, production and commercial structures. In the economic sphere, the 85% of people not in advanced industrialised countries of the third world or the south primarily plus the least well-off in advanced industrialised countries. Widening inequalities can cause longer-term problems of poverty, resentment, social exclusion and political unrest. Pessimists identify a growing polarisation as well as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer with power increasingly concentrated in global corporations. So to sum up, pessimistic globalists see the poor in the South, unskilled workers in the North and women as Mm. some of the important groups of losers from globalisation, plus all of us as sufferers of global problems like pollution. Right, right. So in in the immediate term, it's almost the weak and the vulnerable being even more weak and more vulnerable. But what you're hinting there is that there are implications even for the relatively affluent. If pollution is going to be global, then it's going to affect us all. And if inequalities are going to lead to conflict, then everybody potentially will lose from globalisation. Okay, Graham, what about the transformationist and internationalist perspectives? How do they look at possible winners and losers? Well, here I would just stress they both have a kind of idea of a very complex matrix of winners and losers. If you've got an ongoing evolutionary process of gradually opening up national economies, you're going to get an ongoing changing system of winners and losers or matrix of winners and losers in that. So I think the transformationists would stress that. I think that they would probably understress the the continued inequalities in the system, actually, because, in a sense, the transformationists give a lot of a scope for agencies and multiplicities of agencies to change things. So I think that they're more optimistic than perhaps the internationalist who would stress the, the continued inequalities in the international system right. big time. The internationalist, I think, would still point to between-country changes and between-country inequalities, largely because they stress the key role of the nation-state in this and the national territory. And here, I think, we've got a system of dramatic continuities actually through the last 150 
years, with a rich group of countries doing well and seeming to maintain their position at the kind of the, the lead of the international system, and a larger group of less developed economies, if you like. But there's been very few, interestingly, big changes from the developing group into the developed group. There have been one or two big changes here, clearly the East Asian economies right. in the post-war period, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, in the East Asia uh, instances have leapt, made this move from the less developed to the more developed group. But there's very, very few others. And there'll be one or two have gone the other way. Argentina, South Africa have become troubled middle-income mm. economies where mm. they were in the rich group originally. But relatively, there's massive continuity in the groups of countries and where they are in the relationship to other. And in Indeed, the divergences have grown between this, so we've actually got increased inequality, I think, internationally during this recent period of globalization. Okay, moving on to our last question then, which is the attempt to evaluate these different theories. First of all, what would you say were any of the strengths and weaknesses of the globalist positions, Graham? Well, you've got obviously your positive globalists and your negative globalists in this, so we have to differentiate between them. I mean, the positive globalists still see, as, as Raya was pointing out, a salvation in uh, further market solutions to things, further privatization, further liberalization of the system. One wonders whether, you know, that is actually either attractive or kind of viable. I mean, as I was mentioning, the period of globalization since the 70s have seen a massive increase of interdependence and integration in the international system and not much reduction, if any, if an increase actually in inequalities right. internationally. So more of that, more of the same doesn't look to me very likely to reduce the international inequalities that there are. So I think that their uh, program, as it were, of deepening the, the neoliberal policy you know, is unlikely to produce anything other than increased conflict and, and increased inequalities. Now, the negative globalists, the anti-globalization movement, if you like, I mean, they suffer from two problems. One is that they don't have a clear positive solution to some of these issues. They want to undermine the existing structure. They don't like mm. big business. They don't like the institutions of international governments. They want to see them destroyed, but they don't have any idea about what you're going to put in their place, perhaps more bottom-up kind of NGO-ish type activity. But really, that doesn't seem to me to offer a strong enough solution to the problem. And they want to go back a bit to an older order, if you like, to one where there were comfortable kind of national economies that got on with each other, perhaps. And this doesn't seem to me a viable or attractive kind of line anyway. So they suffer, I think, in my view, from a lack of a kind of positive position that they can put forward our solutions of these problems. Right. So what you've effectively done is to say that the positive globalist position may not be fitting with a lot of the evidence. So you contesting its empirical adequacy. And then you, I think you've raised with both the positive and the pessimistic globalists that there's something perhaps not logical about that argument. They're not particularly coherent arguments. Yes. I don't think the negative globalists, the anti-globalization movement does have a logical and consistent argument. It's really let's undermine, uh, let's just destroy this without actually providing a very clear alternative to me about what will be put in its place. Right. The positive globalists, they appeal to the evidence. They kind of rather like the evidence. <laughs> it suits their purpose. Mm. But I think you can provide some salutary and some sort of skeptical evidence about mm. whether or not these processes are going on quite mm. in the manner in which either is these two groups. Depending um, which bit of evidence you selected. Well, <laughs> uh, partly that, yeah. Anything to add to that, Ray? Well, it's a strength of the pessimistic globalists, I think, that they recognise so strongly that the North has benefited at the expense of the South. Yes. 
there hasn't been the kind of trickle-down effect that the positive globalists predicted. And it's a weakness of both types of globalists that they understate, have too limited a concept of the role of agency, the capacity to act before or when it isn't necessary to do so. Right. What about the transformationist and internationalist positions, Ray? I think a strength of the transformationalist position is that they allow for more flexibility and see the future of the system as more open than the globalists do. This is the idea that in political terms, national governments are not so much losing power as having to adjust to a new context in which their power and sovereignty are shared and bartered among other public and private agencies. I can see three weaknesses of the transformationalist position. First, in the realm of culture, the transformationalist case can be seen as a kind of globalist light position. They reject the cultural imperialism argument and put more significance than it deserves on things like the impact of world music as evidence of cultural flows from Mm. the developing world to the West as well as the other way. Secondly, in economics, the transformationalist middle ground agreeing that national economies are no longer viable as the driving force of the international economy, but reining back from the view that market forces cannot be challenged or restrained, can be seen as rather vague and indeterminate. The transformationalist middle position also obscures the human cost that phenomena under the label of globalisation bring about, such as the social disruption and misery involved in leaving settled ways of life and becoming poorly treated migrants. And thirdly, they have a faith that globalisation can be harnessed that's not necessarily borne out by the evidence. Also, transformationalists don't always take seriously enough the growing inequalities across the globe that are developing as a result of regionalisation. Their regional focus can blind them to the scale of global inequalities. Now, on the strength of the internationalist case, I've got to say that I have a lot of sympathy with the internationalist position. It's a view which rightly emphasises the significance of continuities with international, cultural, economic and political patterns in the past. And there's a lot of factual evidence to support this view. I think the argument that the strong national economies are still very powerful world economic players is an important one to bear in mind. In terms of culture, the evidence for the resilience of national cultures is very significant. And on the political front, the argument about the capacity of national governments to regulate the lives of their citizens and to manage global affairs has never been so extensive is a good one. As far as the weakness of the internationalist case is concerned, some people would say that in the face of these transnational forces and processes, internationalists misjudge the strength of the nation states, that they put too much faith in the capacities of Mm. national governments. Critics would argue that states are in fact weak and that internationalists misguidedly trust nation-states to be key agents in the system when they aren't any longer central players. Anything to add to that, Graham? I think the globalisation debate is a really important one, and we can't avoid it. But I think 
getting back to a point that I made earlier, that if globalization begins to inflate so much that we get so many things getting underneath its intellectual mm. umbrella, it becomes an explanation for everything, everything that we can think in the kind of social, political and economic world, technology, human relations, emotional states and so on, and it just inflates too far for me. Mm. And I think there's a danger of this has happened, so more and more things are included under its umbrella and as a consequence, it begins to explain everything and is everywhere. Well, it explains nothing and is nowhere. The other point I make is that globalization comes and goes. It's in a cycle. We may have peaked. The present round of globalization may have peaked, in my view. We may have got to a state where there isn't much capacity for growth of further interdependence and integration. So I think we may see a retreat from globalization, actually in the future. And that's worth just kind of thinking about, I think. We hope we've clarified the issues. We hope we've outlined some of the different approaches to globalisation. We've raised issues of possible winners and losers. And I hope we've helped you in thinking about possible strengths and weaknesses of the competing theories. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.